Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. We've reached day three in our 12 Days of Christmas essay series. The subject today, Thoreau and civil disobedience. Reading an essay by Montaigne is like being taken for a walk in the woods, even though Montaigne never leaves his library while he's writing it, and you never leave your chair while you're reading it. Henry David Thoreau, the writer that I'm talking about today, he literally went into the woods in order to write, in order to think, in his own mind, I think, in order to be. His best known piece of writing, which is not the one I'm going to be focusing on today, but it's it's the piece of writing for which he is still revered and by some people still mocked, is Walden, published in 1854, which tells the story of the year. It was really two years, but he condensed it into a year that he spent in the late 1840s building and then living in a tiny house in the woods on Walden Pond near to his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts. He wrote in Walden, I quote, I went to the woods to live deliberately, to front the essential facts of life, so as not when I die to discover I had not lived, which is pretty Montaigne-like including the idea that the moment of death is when you find out what your life meant. Thoreau, in so many ways, is nothing like Montaigne. He's separated by nearly three centuries, by an ocean, by a culture, by a civilization, by his temperament. But for someone who hasn't got much in common with Montaigne, he's got an awful lot in common with Montaigne. Thoreau's mentor, the transcendentalist philosopher and essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson, worshipped Montaigne. He wrote a kind of hymn of praise to him. What he loved about Montaigne was Montaigne's scepticism, his refusal to accept received wisdom, Montaigne's idea that you look into yourself and you follow your own thoughts to discover the truth, and Thoreau believed the same thing. Thoreau shared a similar attitude to the natural world, which was to try and place human beings in it, not outside it. That was one of the things he was doing in his little house in the woods, living in nature, looking at it, observing it, and recognising all the ways, not in which animals are human-like. He doesn't really anthropomorphise the animals, so he does a little bit, but he wanders at them. He is awestruck by nature and by nature's ability to organise itself. It doesn't need human beings It has its own patterns that it is the job of human beings to identify. And then when you identify them, you see that the human is part of the patterns of nature. There is a line in Walden where Thoreau describes us as the human insect, not because he thinks ants are human, though he does a bit. He spends some time talking about ant politics, but because we are like them. There is some transcendental view of humanity which just sees us as part of the same order of things that has ants in it. And we order our lives like they order our lives. And are we aware of how we do it any more than they are? It's Montaigne-like. Thoreau was also writing just at a time in the 1840s, 1850s, when people, including the United States, not a country known for people's curiosity about the rest of the world, but still... People were starting to think that travel might be a good idea and that it might be interesting to see how other peoples lived, that there was something exotic about the idea of maybe encountering very remote parts of the world, going to see 
the most exotic places and being maybe awestruck or just curious about how strange other people are. And Thoreau said, that's not the journey you should take. His travelogue was inside his own head. He said, the great unmarked places on the map where the map is blank is inside you. And that's the bit that you don't know. And that's the bit that you should explore. He says, you should be the Christopher Columbus of your own head. And you should go in there. And that's the journey you should take. Go into the woods and then explore yourself. But for two reasons, Thoreau really is nothing like Montaigne. One is to do with personality and one is to do with politics. And I'm going to focus on the politics in a bit, but just to start with personality. Thoreau wasn't much fun and Montaigne was. So Montaigne is fun and Montaigne is funny. And when Montaigne reflects on the way in which the human being and the human body is animal, is bestial, that we defecate and urinate and fornicate and we can't control these things and we try and dress them up as something more than they are in order to pretend that we're not what we are all of that Montaigne finds it ridiculous and he mocks us for it and he mocks himself for it he looks at himself and his own impulses and urges he doesn't reject them he laughs at them Thoreau there's not a lot of laughs in Thoreau and in some ways he does reject them so one of Thoreau's mantras is simplify, 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 pare everything down. But you could, though he doesn't put it like this, say it's purify, purify, purify. He wants to strip that away. And though he thinks that to be human is to recognize the ways in which we are animals, part of being the best human being you can be is to try and remove yourself from that. He said, again, I quote, he is blessed who is assured the animal is dying out in him day by day. And by the animal, he means the animal urges. You should remove yourself as far as possible from those urges. And that includes everything. So it includes the urge to human company, go into the woods, separate yourself from other human beings, be alone. Solitude's a big part of it. Montaigne's solitude is so that he can think about all the stuff that happens out there in the world. Thoreau really values solitude for its own sake, but also purify the body. Montaigne finds his body hilarious. Thoreau, when you read him, I think he finds his body appalling. He finds eating and drinking slightly repulsive. This slimy, beastly life, he called it, eating and drinking. Eating and drinking is slimy and beastly. He doesn't want people to do it. Don't drink alcohol, he says. Don't drink coffee. Don't drink tea. Just drink water. He said, I get my water from the pond. That's all I need. And when people occasionally did come and visit him in his little house by the pond and ask for a drink, he said, go to the pond. That's where you'll get your drink. Like a lot of slightly odd, highly opinionated people, he's quite prophetic and one of the things that he says is that we should stop eating meat and that in future, when people look back on his time, the 1840s, 1850s, they will be astonished that people still ate meat. So it's the sort of thing that people say today in 2023. Sometimes people say, what will people in 50 years time find oddest about us? And the answer it's almost a conventional answer now is that they will think it's extraordinary that we still ate meat. Well, Thoreau was saying that in the 1840s. 
But at one point he says, try not to eat meat and ideally try not to eat food. He really, really wants to purify, strip away the people, strip away the stimulus, strip away the food. There's a bit of not just self-sacrifice, but acute, slightly unhinged self-denial going on here. Nothing like Montaigne. And you do it, Thoreau thinks, in order to be true to yourself. There is a kind of truth that you can find in the purity of a very, very pared-down existence, where other people aren't cluttering your thoughts and your natural, bestial, slimy appetites aren't getting in the way of a kind of clarity of mind. And it is so easy to mock that, and Thoreau has been endlessly mocked for it, for the sanctimony, for the hypocrisy of it. No one ever calls Montaigne sanctimonious, but Thoreau is called sanctimonious all the time. In 2015, the science writer Catherine Schultz wrote a brilliant but brutal takedown of Thoreau in The New Yorker. I think the headline of it was Pond Scum. And she just assails him for everything. I mean, just everything. The hypocrisy of pretending to lead this this pure, pared-down, simplified life when he wasn't really. The thing that people who want to take down Thoreau always point out is that when he went into the woods to be alone, he still came back into town every now and then to get his mother to do his washing. He got his mother to wash his shirts. The hypocrisy of the man who says strip everything away but doesn't really do it himself. He had company. People did come and visit him, the people he pointed to the pond. He didn't deny himself all human contact. He was a hypocrite. He was a prig. And as Catherine Schultz says, the whole thing is completely impractical and unworkable. This can't be a set of rules of life for everyone because it would be absurd if everyone lived like this. It can't be the case that everyone follows their own truth because that would be chaos. She says it's like those endless, awful US commencement addresses that people give students when they tell them what it is to be a person in the world. And they're either, or at the same time, cliched and obviously untrue. People are told, you have to follow your path, you have to believe your dream, you have to be the person that you can be, which is kind of banal. But at the same time, obviously, not everyone can do that. If everyone was doing that, nothing would work. Schultz calls him hypocritical, sanctimonious and inconsistent. And he is all of those things. But so what? Why does he have to be consistent? So one of the things that I felt reading Thoreau is that he's, he is a quintessential essayist. That's the form in which he writes. And essays don't have to be consistent. Essays are not theses and treaties. They are not manifestos. They are not dissertations. Essays are just journeys of thought. And they can meander this way and that, and Thoreau really does meander this way and that. They don't have to hold to the path. The job of an essayist is to be arresting. That is, as the essayist goes on his or her way following a line of thought, the person reading it occasionally should be brought up short. It should jolt. It should stop you thinking as you follow them thinking because something about what they have said makes you think again. And Thoreau really does do that. There are phrases, there are moments in Walden, but also in the essay I'm going to focus on now, which anyone reading it, however irritated they are by it, and to be honest, 
perhaps because they are so irritated by it, you are forced occasionally to think. So the other difference with Montaigne is the politics, and particularly the politics of what is the other piece of writing that Thoreau is still known for and celebrated for, his most political essay. It's now known, this essay, as Civil Disobedience. It was originally published under the title Resistance to Civil Government. It was, first of all, a lecture that Thoreau gave in 1848, and then it was published as an essay in 1849. Montaigne thought that when you encounter the foolishness of the world, the stupidity of some people, but particularly people in high places, and the readiness of so many people to get involved in fights on everything that they don't know how to end and they don't know how to win. You have to wait it out. You have to remember that this too will pass. You have to remember that things that seem all-consuming and all-encompassing now probably aren't. And Montaigne thought the best strategy was patience. That is not Thoreau. So Thoreau believed that there are times when you encounter the stupidity of the world the foolishness of public opinion and of people in high places. You can't wait. And to wait, to try and wait it out, to say this too shall pass, is a kind of sin. You have to do something. There are times when you have to do something. And you have to try and stop the world from being so stupid or so wicked. And not to do that is itself stupid and wicked. It is the opposite of Montaigne's advice. What were the things that Thoreau thought were stupid and wicked? In civil disobedience, there are two features of American life, American public life, American social life, American political life, that Thoreau thinks cannot be allowed to stand. The first is slavery, the existence of slavery, its sanction in the American Constitution, the fact that it was legal, encouraged the basis of the economy of the American South and contaminating the whole of American public life by getting its tentacles into everything. Slavery, you can't wait it out. You can't say this too shall pass. You can't think that in the end this won't seem as important as it does now. Slavery cannot be allowed to stand. And the second thing that exercised Thoreau in 1848-1849 was war, one war in particular, the US-Mexican War that lasted from 1846 to 1848, that was undertaken during the administration of James Polk, a slave-owning president. It was a war of annexation. It was the attempt by the federal government to take what had become the independent Republic of Texas into the Union Texas, which had been Mexican, was going to be American and it was going to be claimed by force, by force of arms. It involved not just annexation, but also an invasion of Mexico, pushing back the border, trying to get more land. It was an unbelievably bloody, cruel, violent war. Cormac McCarthy's book, Blood Meridian, which I think is the most violent work of fiction I've ever read, the most disturbingly violent work of fiction, I can imagine, is set at the end of the US-Mexican War, 1849-1850, in a lawless world of mind-boggling violence and cruelty. That war, Thoreau said, 
also cannot be allowed to stand. And the two things were connected, slavery and the war. Polk was a slave-owning president. Polk got elected promising, among other things, to annex Texas. Texas was in the American South. If Texas became part of the Union, the slave-holding parts of the Union would also grow. When the Union grew to the North and to the Northwest, that was good news for those people who opposed slavery. But everywhere it grew in the South, it seemed, at least, to entrench the idea that slavery was part of the Union. To take Texas into the United States, Thoreau thought, was, among other things, to not just acquiesce in, but to positively encourage the idea that slavery is part of the American way of life. The war had to end to end slavery. Slavery had to end to prevent wars like this. Those were the two things that Thoreau said cannot, must not be allowed to stand. But he also knew that both of them, in their different ways, were popular. And the United States was a democratic system of government in which both slavery and the war with Mexico had popular sanction, democratic sanction. Slavery was not just in the Constitution. It was not just upheld by the Supreme Court. But the Constitution itself had democratic sanction, And the administrations, including the most recent administration, were elected to be led by people who owned slaves, who believed in slavery and had no intention of ending it. The people allowed slavery to happen. And in a democracy, we're meant to believe that if the people are okay with it, then it's all right. The war was popular, Not with everybody. Thoreau wasn't the only person who was horrified by it. He wasn't the only vocal opponent of it. But to oppose the war as at that point, to be an abolitionist, to oppose slavery, was a minority position. The war was popular because the war was a patriotic cause. It seemed to capture something about American destiny, its manifest destiny, which was itself popular. The idea that America would grow, would become a continental power, that America's destiny was to get bigger, to take more people into it. Polk won election promising to do precisely that. He did what he said he would do. He said he would annex Texas, and he did. And the people voted for it, not all of them, but the majority did. Majority opinion was on Polk's side. It was patriotic, it was jingoist, there was not much sympathy for the victims of this war. To stand up against slavery... To stand up against this war was to stand up against majority public opinion in the United States. And Democrats are told that in a democracy, majority public opinion is the thing that determines what will and will not stand. Thoreau says, in a democracy, particularly in a democracy, it is essential that some people say vocally, publicly, that their individual conscience is higher than majority opinion, who go against the idea that the majority is right. And there are two reasons why Thoreau thought it was essential, particularly in a democracy, that some people refuse to do what the majority says is right. The first is that the majority, not always, not even maybe most of the time, but often, is wrong. There is nothing 
that should lead anyone to believe that there is a necessary or inherent connection between majority views, being elected, commanding the assent of most people, and the right course of action. Often, most people believe in the wrong thing. And when that is true, to acquiesce to the majority is to abdicate morality. Thoreau thought. And it's particularly important in a democracy because majority opinion is so powerful. It is so hard to resist. So if you live in a tyranny, one man, it'll probably be a man, one man rules over you. In many ways, it's easier to recognise that that person is often going to be wrong. I mean, who believes that a tyrant is always right? Tyrants are just people like the rest of us. They're going to get things wrong. It might be harder to resist because it might be a brutal tyranny. And unless it's a personality cult, in which case you might have been brainwashed into thinking that Stalin is always right. But in a conventional tyranny, you'll know that the tyrant is often wrong. You might not be able to do anything about it, but you won't at least believe that somehow it is wrong to think that that person is wrong, if you're thinking at all. But in a democracy, you might well believe that it is wrong to think that the majority is wrong, not because you've been brainwashed, but because you actually believe that majority rule is itself inherently right. And Thoreau says, it's not. And to believe that is the beginning of giving up. The second reason he thinks it's so important in a democracy that people call out the majority as being wrong is that democracies have a particular vice. And I think it's part of Thoreau's genius to identify this. Because in a democracy, it's really easy to complain. It's really easy to voice dissent. People are voicing dissent all the time, including against majority opinion, including against wars that they don't like. Because there's freedom of expression, freedom of association, the freedom to say what you think, it's too easy in a democracy to say you don't like something, but not do anything about it. The presiding vice of democratic politics is that most people spend most of their time complaining, complaining about politicians, electing different ones, wanting to change the people in power, complaining about what they hear, complaining about what they read, saying they don't like this, they don't like that, and thinking that complaining is sufficient to voice dissent. Whereas Thoreau says, a complaint does nothing. You can say you don't like something. That thing will just continue. If you want to stop it, you have to stop it. You have to do something active. Complaining is not active. Voting is not active. He says, even voting for the right is doing nothing for it because it's abdicating responsibility. The vice of democratic politics is basically always leaving it up to someone else. Because in representative democracies, our job as citizens is to allow other people to decide for us and then to voice our views. Do we like it? Do we not like it? Do we want them to do it? Or do we want someone else to do it? To chop and change, to push back, but not to think it's our job, not to think it belongs to us, the responsibility. We've handed it over. So in democracies, there's endless complaint, there's endless whinging, there's endless talk about what's gone wrong and nothing really changes. Thoreau thinks that democratic politics is a kind of machine politics, the language that gets used about it a lot. It's mechanical, it's artificial, it has its own rhythms to it. And the illusion that democratic citizens have, because they spend so much time whinging about it, is that somehow they're in control of the machine, that the machine 
because they're saying they don't like the way it's going, will change course. And the machine never changes course just because people say they don't like it. It's a machine. You have to, this is Thoreau's phrase, you have to put grit in the machinery. You actually have to make it stop working rather than just say, you wish it wouldn't do this or that. One of the motifs of his writing, and this also I think comes from Montaigne, Montaigne who said, we think we're playing with our cats, but actually our cats are playing with us. One of Thoreau's motifs is to use that turn of phrase about everything. So he says, we are the tools of our tools. He says, we think we keep cattle, cattle keep us. He says, we think we're riding on the rails, the railroads, which was an obsession of the 1840s, the, the dawn of the railway age. We think we're riding on the rails, he says. The rails are riding on us. He says, we are the workmen of our workmen. And in some ways, this is ridiculous and it's absurd, right? The, the idea that someone who is sitting on their ass while someone else cleans their house is working for that person, working for the person who's cleaning their house, is offensive. It's ridiculous. And yet what Thoreau means is that the things that we think are the expressions of our power, of our self-sufficiency, of our ability to be emancipated, someone cleans our house so that we can do something else, but actually we're often trapped by them. We're trapped by the machinery that we've created to emancipate us because we haven't thought hard enough about how we could get it to stop if we're not happy with the way it's working. And that is quintessentially true of the democratic machine. We think we are in charge of it. It is in charge of us. And the evidence of that is that we complain about it and nothing changes. Thoreau thought one of the great vices of all democratic life, and this is a democratic vice, it's not a general human vice, because it depends upon the energy of democratic societies like the United States, is our obsession with the news. He says in a line that he wrote in 1854, and could have been written in 2023, he says, a man goes to sleep for half an hour to take a nap, and he wakes up. And the first thing that he says is, what's the news? What happened in the half hour while I was asleep? What did I miss? What did I miss? as though that's what matters, as though in that half an hour, something will have happened which will explain to you things that you should know anyway. So in the 1840s, people were always asking, what is the news about slavery? Tell me the news about slavery. What are they saying in Washington? Who's doing what? What are the latest shenanigans? What are the latest conspiracies? How does the politics look? Where are the new alliances? What are people saying about Texas? What are people saying about the war? What's the news? As though that was the question, that the question about slavery would be, what's the news? Thoreau thinks that that's madness, right? That's, it's not, the question about slavery is not, what's the news? The question about slavery is, why are we doing this? Why haven't we stopped it? News is a vast distraction. The newspapers the endless newspapers, the news agents, everybody all the time, constantly, every half an hour, talking about what's new, the news. It's like a fever dream. The man wakes up from his half-hour sleep and he says, what's the news? And he's told the news. He doesn't go back to sleep, but he enters a different kind of trance. 
It's a distraction from the real question. The real question is not what's happened. The real question is, we know what's happened. We are a slave-owning society. The question is not what's happening, it's why. Why aren't we doing anything about this? Thoreau says that eventually the majority will realise that slavery is wrong. In the end, if you do wait long enough, the majority does usually come around to the right point of view. But it will be too late. He's absolutely explicit about this. Slavery will seem wrong to majority opinion when it no longer matters, when the damage is beyond having been done. He says slavery will be something that the majority is against when slavery has kind of withered away anyway. The majority will come round to the right point of view only when nothing really is at stake or when everything is clear, but everything will only be clear if it's already changed. Waiting for the majority to work out that it's on the wrong path means waiting until that path has come to an end. And that's waiting way too long. Way too long. So what do you do? What does Thoreau says you do under these circumstances? When you can see it's wrong, when majority opinion is against you, when the law is reinforcing the thing that is wrong, how do you actively resist? It's not enough to complain it's not enough to write, to write to the newspapers, to write for the newspapers, to comment in or on the newspapers. You have to actively resist. That is, you have to refuse your assent, not voice your dissent, but refuse your assent. And how do you do that? Well, the government does depend on you. This is a democracy, but it's also a government, like all governments, that has to be funded. So you must refuse to fund it you refuse to pay tax. And that's what Thoreau did. He describes meeting the tax collector in his locality in Concord, Massachusetts, and discovering that the tax collector wants him to pay up the arrears that he owes because he's way behind with his taxes. And he says, I won't, I can't. I will not hand over my money to continue the machinery, which is the machinery of slavery and of the annexation of Texas, which will be the furthering of slavery. I will not give my practical assent to that. And the state says, in the form of the tax collector, you have to, it's the law. If you don't, you'll go to jail. So Thoreau goes to jail. For one night, this is the other thing that he's assailed for. He's ridiculous in so many ways. So he does go to jail for a night. And then someone bails him out, someone pays for him to get out of jail. And I think the rumour is that it was his, his aunt. So poor Thoreau, you know, his mother does his washing and his aunt pays his debts. And so he can never quite make the stand that he wants to make. He's a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. But Thoreau's point is not follow my personal example. He doesn't actually really very often ever say that. He says, do this for yourself. Work it out for yourself and do it for yourself. You have to refuse. You have to refuse to allow this to continue in the only way that it's possible for you to do. The great temptation of democratic politics is to think that because other people have the power, that is, we elect them and then they decide, all we can do is change the people who decide for us. So we pass over our freedom of thought and of conscience in relation to these really important matters, the decisive questions, the freedom to decide. 
what to do to other people in a representative democracy. And then we keep chopping and changing in the hope that we'll find the people whose thoughts align with ours. We can't really do anything else. And Thoreau says that's giving up. If you do that, you will in the end always be subject to the majority machine. It doesn't matter how often you chop and change. There is something that you can do. You can do something for yourself. It's not voting. It's acting. And the only act that you can do which is within your power is a negative act, the act of refusal. And then you have to accept the punishment. You signal that you really mean this. You're not doing it for selfish reasons or policy reasons, practical reasons. You're doing it for moral reasons because this is a standard principle by accepting that the state will punish you for it. Thoreau wanted to stay in jail if his aunt hadn't got him out. And in this way, he creates a template for civil disobedience. This is the classic template. And Thoreau lies right at the origin and the heart of that tradition. You seek out laws to break, to actively break them, not passively, but actively break them. You accept, indeed, you welcome the punishment. The punishment has to be part of the action to signal what it is you're trying to communicate which is that you will not allow this to stand. You will not acquiesce in the entire system. The system will have to punish you because you are grit in the machinery. You have to make yourself grit. Gandhi was inspired by Thoreau, the greatest ever exponent of this form of politics, the politics of civil disobedience or passive resistance. Gandhi found a kindred spirit in Thoreau. And to be honest, Thoreau was already there. Thoreau was himself inspired by... Hindu philosophy and teaching, including the asceticism, some of the self-denial. Gandhi saw in Thoreau some of what Thoreau saw in the Eastern teaching, which also was the basis of much of Gandhi's thought. Thoreau was genuinely intellectually voracious and curious, and he was not at all a parochial American. Gandhi also adopts from Thoreau an intense sense of self-abnegation or at least willingness to deny the body. The body becomes an instrument. It becomes the means towards some higher end. Thoreau and Gandhi are on the same page on so many things. And frankly, you couldn't get two people more different than Gandhi and Montaigne. Martin Luther King was inspired by Gandhi. Gandhi was inspired by Thoreau. There's a line that runs all the way through this right up to contemporary civil disobedience. The model is still the same. Active resistance, accepting punishment, self-denial, moral stand. But Thoreau is still really remote, actually, from contemporary civil disobedience movements. A lot of the version of this that Thoreau articulates is very much of his time, and it doesn't really work now. It's very personal, the way Thoreau does it. It, it. it depends upon a personal encounter with the state. That central experience, which is meeting the tax collector in the woods and saying to that person's face, and Thoreau calls it a face-to-face -face encounter with the state, human to human. One human to say to another human, I won't do it, forcing the other human to drag him off to jail, as it were, not literally, but eventually doesn't really happen now. You don't really encounter the state in that way. None of us do, certainly not the tax collecting arm of the state. If you refuse to pay tax now, it'll be a long, long, long time before you encounter a human being face to face who tries to drag you off to jail. You will be smothered 
by the machinery of state. It's incredibly hard, not least because the machinery now is so much more extensive than it was then. That was a very, very basic model of politics that Thoreau was trying to operate with. I won't pay my taxes to support your war. Of course, you can do that now. and People do do that now. They do boycott. They do refuse to pay tax, trying to signal some issue, some position that they will not allow their money to be used for. But the machinery of state is so vast that you just get lost in it. To be grit in the machinery of tax collecting, if you're not a billionaire who's just avoiding tax, but you are an ordinary citizen who says, I will not hand over my money to your cause. You're not grit in the machine, you're spit in the machine. The machine will chew you up and spit you out and nobody will notice. You can't do the Thoreau thing. Thoreau's is small town face-to-face politics, which has gone. Thoreau's version of it is also very US constitution specific. He thought another failing of democratic politics in his time is people leaving it up to their state governments and then their state governments funnel their authority up to Washington. So everything's at one remove or at two removes and you have to drag it back to the local level. You can't directly communicate with the federal government, but you can withdraw your assent from your state governments within a federal system and they are the ones who are fueling the monstrosities, the bestialities of federal political projects. So you you take it down to the most local level that you can and that's where you withdraw your assent and it will feed its way back up the chain. But in the hyper-centralized political systems we have now, including the United States, still a federal system, but so much is now owned by and controlled by Washington. You do it at the most local level, and as it moves up the chain, it just disappears. It gets lost. Try stopping a war now. Thoreau was the definitive stop-the-war campaigner, but not campaigner, because he didn't believe it was a campaign. He believed it was a moral position, and you had to stand where you believed no one should be allowed to move from. But try stopping a war now. Try stopping a war now by refusing to pay the taxes that support that war. The machinery of state, the centralization of government in the United States, the the military machine, is almost impervious to your taxpayers' money. I mean, in the end, it needs it. But so, so far down the line, that process is so attenuated and so remote that the individual making a stand against that frankly, looks absurd. Stop the war movements now have to be political campaigns. They have to be mass movements. Thoreau's is the solitary position of the solitary conscience saying no. The war machine doesn't care about that. The war machine doesn't even particularly care about two million people out on the street saying no. But it cares a bit more about the second than it does about the first. You can organise consumer boycotts. You can try and starve the beast in various ways, but the ability to do it with the symbolic force that Thoreau was able to deploy in the 1840s is probably lost. And yet, I still think Thoreau speaks to something now. And when I read Thoreau, the connection that stands out for me is with environmental politics. Not because Thoreau was an early environmentalist, because he lived in nature and because he liked studying the birds and the fish and he believed in self-sufficiency, not for any of those reasons. I mean, that may have something to do with it. To be honest, that's not the bit that I'm interested in, the naturism. It's because of what he says about majority opinion. And what you do in a democratic society, 
when conventional opinion, majority opinion, including the opinion that then becomes the opinion of the state, is wrong? What do you do? And the temptation is to complain, because that's what we do do in democracies. And a lot of us spend a lot of our time worrying about and complaining about aspects of environmental politics. Not everyone, but almost everyone now, certainly the vast majority of people, are deeply concerned about climate and the climate crisis, the risks that we're running, the mistakes that are being made, the inaction of government. There is a lot of frustration. There is a lot of venting. There's an awful lot of news. What is the news about climate? A question that's asked over and over again. You go to sleep for half an hour, you wake up, you want to know what's the news. The news is that last week was the hottest day in the history of recorded days. That's the news. We complain, we discuss, we change the cast of characters at the top, we worry, but we don't do anything. And part of the reason we don't do anything is that the machine is on its path, it's set, and to change its course, complaining is nowhere near enough. Worrying is nowhere near enough. The machinery of commerce and economics and government is deeply, deeply embedded in the way that we organise our societies. And complaining is not putting grit in the machine. I sometimes find myself thinking at three in the morning, if we were on the path to catastrophe, climate catastrophe, not the end of everything, not the destruction of the human race, but something sufficiently bad that when it comes, we will wonder why the hell we didn't try and stop it. A form of collapse, the interplay between climate change and institutional failure, which is the great risk that we run. As the climate gets worse, the institutions will find it harder and harder to cope. They will become more attenuated, more shrill in the way that they work, more repressive. As they become those things, the climate crisis will be harder and harder to resolve because it requires forms of collective action that are not attenuated and shrill but are genuinely cooperative. If we get into that cycle, which is a cycle down to something terrible, if we're on that path, how would the world now be signalling that? What in our politics would be showing us that we're on that path? We're looking for the signal. And my fear is that it would look like the world looks today, that this is what the signal looks like. This is exactly what you would expect of a world that is on that path. That is, a lot of news and a lot of noise and a lot of round and round the houses activity and a lot of talk, but a clear direction of travel which doesn't seem to shift in the face of all that talk and all that news that seems relatively impervious to the newspapers and the news agents and everything else. And then a few cranks, a few eccentrics saying, this is a disaster. And them being mocked and being laughed at because they're standing up to a form of majority opinion, not explicit, but embedded majority opinion, which is that we should do something about it, but not quite yet. And we should do something about it, but it doesn't quite depend on us. And we should do something about it, but we're not quite sure what that thing is. And majority opinion says to the cranks and the eccentrics who are trying to say, stop, what's your plan? You haven't got a better idea than the rest of us. And Thoreau says explicitly, it is not the job of the person who says stop 
to come up with the alternative plan. It was not Thoreau's job to come up with a plan to end slavery. It was not Thoreau's job to come up with a negotiated peace for the US-Mexican war. All the job of the civil disobedient is, is to say, you can't do this and I will not allow it even though it will carry on because I am just one person, but I will not allow it. And that person will be mocked. That person will be ridiculed. It looks absurdly ineffectual. It looks hypocritical because that person almost certainly depends on the institutions that they're trying to prevent from working. It's really easy to mock Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, to mock people usually well-off middle-class people leading comfortable lives that depend on fossil fuels, driving or flying, living in nice houses, who glue themselves to things and who lie down in the road to try and stop cars from driving and who go to Wimbledon and scatter orange powder over the green courts. It's ridiculous. It's so easy to deride it. And yet, what are you meant to do if you think, if you know as an individual, as some people seem to know, that this is just wrong, this cannot continue, that we might well already be on a path which is ruinous, politically ruinous, at some level morally ruinous, that we are living unsustainable lives. What are you meant to do? Thoreau would say, you're meant to do that. The only thing you can do is try to be grit. And you know your grit when you irritate people. The job, in a way, is to be irritating, literally irritating. The Daily Mail's term now that they've adopted for Just Stop Oil and other eco-protesters is eco-morons. Here are the eco-morons. And then as each eco-moron is arrested and taken off to be dealt with by the machinery of government... The Daily Mail will go and find the house that they live in and show that it's a nice house. So they're eco-morons and they're also the eco-hypocrites. And Thoreau would say, but what else are they meant to do? If they know something, and they might, I'm not saying they do, but they might, if they know something that the majority probably eventually will also know, but too late, what are they meant to do? So Thoreau himself didn't just protest by refusing to pay tax and get locked up for one night. He was much more active than that, particularly against slavery. So he, he was involved in part of the Underground Railroad that worked dangerously and often tirelessly to help slaves who escaped from slavery to remain outside of the reach of the law, the law which still sanctioned by majority opinion was willing to drag them back to slavery from their place of ref refuge. And the Underground Railroad and the people, the heroic people who worked for it, and that includes Thoreau in his small way, did what they could not just to be grit in the machinery, but to be active participants in a form of emancipation. In 1859, Thoreau was one of the most vocal supporters of John Brown, the man whose raid on Harper's Ferry was the most violent 
pre-Civil War attempt to foment a slave uprising to say that this thing, which is itself the most extreme and unsustainable form of violence, slavery, has to be confronted with violence. The only way these killing fields will be stopped is with some more killing. And many abolitionists were horrified by John Brown, by the sort of messianic violence, but Thoreau wasn't. Thoreau said, this is what has to happen. This thing will require violence. He wasn't a Gandhian passive resistor in that sense. Thoreau was quite happy to accept that the ultimate grit in the machinery of the state will be another form of violent machinery, a confrontation. He lived to see the confrontation, the American Civil War. He didn't live to see its denouement. He died in 1862, so he did not live to see the end of slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation. He died just a bit too soon. Slavery was not ended because people like Thoreau in Concord, Massachusetts in the 1840s spent a night in jail because they refused to pay the taxes that supported the system that ultimately upheld the abhorrent practice of slavery. Slavery was ended by politics, by machine politics, by a master of machine politics, Abraham Lincoln. It was ended in the new cycle, the cycle of the Civil War. It wasn't some great moral stand. The Emancipation Proclamation was part of a sequence of events that only makes sense in terms of the sequence. It's very hard to understand it by abstracting it simply in terms of principles. And many of the people who study it and write about it struggle with this. Steven Spielberg's film, Lincoln, is partly about this. It was in its way a form of news-based politics. You have to square the right people. You have to know what's going on. You have to know the gossip in Washington. You have to know who's up, who's down, who's biddable, who's threatenable. Politics is all about that, and Thoreau's version of it in many ways is not absurd, but impossibly remote from all of that. It is ascetic. Purify, purify, purify is not going to get you anywhere in Washington, D.C. The machinery of state was needed to counter the machinery of slavery. The Civil War was won. The machinery of state was then needed for reconstruction, and it was the abdication of the machinery of state. It was withdrawing the mechanics of reconstruction that allowed the recreation of the racist order of the South, the Jim Crow order, for another hundred years. It was the absence of the kind of politics that Thoreau hated, the big politics of the state machine, remote from people, people abdicating their personal responsibility to systems that then make the world work. It was the withdrawal of that. It was the ability of the southern states to act as states separate from the federal government and to reinstitute the order that had been lost with the Civil War that destroyed the work that Thoreau would have believed had been done by the victory of the Civil War. Nothing about it is simple. Nothing about it simply makes sense in Thoreau's terms. He would know that he could do what he likes in the woods and then he could make his protest in Concord, Massachusetts. That wasn't going to end slavery. Thoreau was not a fool. He understood that. And he was only in the woods for a short time. He came out and in Walden he said, I left the woods because I had several more lives to live. And that included more active lives. It also included working in a pencil factory, which is where he made his living. He wasn't just 
a man who was starving himself because he couldn't bear his own body, his own desires. He did live in the world. But one of the lives that he felt had to be lived and couldn't be lived in the woods was the life of the person who does resist within a democracy the claims of democratic government to speak for the people. Somebody has to do that, Thoreau thought. And the way you do that, and this was the language he used, is you have to wash your hands of the stupidity of your fellow citizens, their foolishness, their cupidity, their laziness, their insatiability, their refusal to see what is in front of them. Thoreau thought his fellow citizens were asleep. He uses that imagery all the time of being asleep and the need to be woken up, to be awoken, to be woke. You have to wake up from your slumbers. And the only way you're going to wake up from your slumbers is to be so irritated that you can't rest peacefully. You need to wash your hands of your fellow citizens and their stupidity. And you can't do that in Walden Pond, right? You can wash your hands in Walden Pond and you can drink the water of Walden Pond and no one will be watching you. And you can write beautiful essays about the birds and the fish and the insects. And Thoreau did a lot of that. But that's not the thing. That's just one of the lives that you can lead. The political thing is to wash your hands of your fellow citizens in public, which is unbelievably irritating and offensive. No one's going to like it. How could they like it? It's priggish. It's insufferable. It's intolerable to have people publicly declare that they're better than you, that they've seen something that you haven't seen. It will drive people mad. And Thoreau was insufferable. And he was priggish. There's something about Thoreau which is intolerable. And yet, it's absolutely essential. To find out more about this podcast, please follow us on Twitter, at PPF Ideas. Tomorrow is day four in the 12 days of Christmas. It's Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. <laughs>